As a wave of protests continue to spread across the United States, calls for justice over the killings of black Americans by police have been joined by a growing outcry from the medical community. The COVID-19 pandemic has now pointed a bright red arrow on another dire public health crisis in America, racism. While it might not seem intuitive to everyone, doctors are taking this moment to yet again remind the U.S. of one thing. Racial inequality against black Americans has far-reaching effects, and the evidence shows it's a public health emergency. Despite the health danger protesting can create, marches continued in cities across the globe well into June 2020. One crowd control chemical, tear gas, has scientists sounding the alarm. The use of tear gas, notably in front of the White House on June 1st, 2020, the one that removed peaceful protesters so Donald Trump could pose for a photo op holding a Bible, has led medical professionals to demand an ethically responsible approach to public safety. As more Americans protest despite the threat it poses to our overall health, we look at how to rebuild a public health system that keeps all of us as safe and healthy as possible. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story is about a complex issue that has many health experts in agreement. COVID-19 is a public health emergency, and so is racism. While the coronavirus has brought this idea into mainstream understanding, the notion that racism is a public health issue is not a new one. Experts say COVID-19 is just a stark reminder of this inequality, and that it's time to dismantle the unfair and unjust policies governing daily life in the United States. Our second story is about another issue that has medical professionals concerned for protesters, chemical weapons. Describing tear gas as unethical, they worry it may heighten the transmission of COVID-19 and are urging police to stop using it, bringing to light another layer of structural racism being perpetuated on a population that may be particularly vulnerable to its effects. This is The Abstract. Look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, a look at the COVID-19 public health emergency through the eyes of racism. In the black community, COVID-19 is hitting us very hard. The pandemic appears to be disproportionately affecting people of color. People who are black or African-American are more likely to contract the virus and to die from it. African-Americans are being hit disproportionately hard. And we know that there's some socioeconomic conditions that are causing them to be in situations where they're not only more likely to get coronavirus, but also more likely to suffer the consequences behind it. With emerging data saying it's killing black Americans at 2.4 times the rate of white Americans, COVID-19 is an all-too-stark reminder of the racial inequality the U.S. is swimming in. When they do seek care, Black Americans are more likely to get lower-quality aid at hospitals and face implicit bias from their medical providers. According to Dr. Leandris C. LeBird, the CDC's chief health equity officer for the COVID-19 response, this is nothing new. Here she is speaking for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's webinar entitled COVID-19 in Racial and Ethnic Minority Groups. Sister health disparities combined with housing patterns, work circumstances, and other factors have put members of many racial and ethnic minority populations at highest risk. History shows that severe illness and death rates tend to be higher for some racial and ethnic minority groups during public health emergencies. 
Living as a black person in a racist society doesn't just cause psychological damage. It can also contribute to a long list of negative health outcomes, including higher rates of diabetes, hypertension, asthma, and heart disease compared to white individuals. Then there's the mental toll. About 66% of black people report high levels of day-to-day racial discrimination, which can trigger their fight-or-flight response, adding to more health issues. Again, evidence suggests these health disparities stem from environmental factors, like exposure to pollution and limited access to healthy food and quality medical care. However, according to the CDC, there are important steps being taken to change this. Addressing the needs of disproportionately impacted populations in emergencies includes improving day-to-day life and harnessing the strengths of these groups. This means addressing the social determinants of health, such as access to quality health care, housing status, employment, and income needs while working collaboratively with racial and ethnic minorities. All of these are the key to our success. Some experts say COVID-19 will make the social inequality of poor health even worse, but also cast a light on a problem America has been all too predisposed to neglect, noting perhaps this is the chance to take hold of a crucial moment in time in order to change our health systems for the better. Joining us now with more is Inverse's Ali Patillo. Hey, Ali. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for having me. Sure. So... Racism is this big enough public health concern that for so many, protesting was more important than staying safe at home. That's a big deal. That should tell you something. What do the health specialists that you spoke to think about hitting the streets as the COVID-19 pandemic continues? Yeah. So medical professionals and public health experts do acknowledge that demonstrating comes with a bit of a risk. You know, you are in closer contact with others. You might have heightened exposure to COVID-19, but they also acknowledge that while COVID-19 has been a brutal public health crisis. No one can argue differently. Racism is too, and that needs to stop. So they encourage people, if they feel called to, to protest safely, to try to social distance when they're at a demonstration, to wear a face covering, practice good hand hygiene, hygiene, all of the things that, all the good public health precautions we've been doing. But they say that, you know, racism deserves attention too. And that's why people are out there. And in in a lot of ways, a lot of physicians have been joining protests on their breaks from the hospital. And I think that just speaks to how pressing this issue really is. And when you look at COVID-19 and its impact, it's always this glaring reminder of the lower quality care and medical bias that exists within the Black community. Your piece highlighted that in in some ways. Can you remind us just um, how the current state of affairs is and, and reflects upon that? Absolutely. So we've seen from a growing body of research that COVID-19 has hit Black Americans harder than many other groups. Some suggestions say the virus is killing Black Americans at 2.4 times the rate of white Americans. Um, And when they do seek care during this pandemic or not, Black Americans are also more likely to experience lower quality of care at hospitals and clinics and face implicit bias from their medical provider. Um, And these health disparities aren't new. This lack of racial equity in healthcare has been around for hundreds of years, but COVID-19 has just put them in stark, stark clarity. Not to mention the mental toll of racism, which might prove to cause the most ongoing stress on a biological level. That's what jumped out to me. You know, these effects are more damaging in the long term than I think a lot of people realize. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's sometimes the idea that racism only causes psychological damage, but there are decades of research showing that racism causes meaningful and devastating changes to physiology and very serious health consequences. And a lot of that stems originally from the mental toll, as you mentioned. If you can imagine when experiencing discrimination or harassment on the street or violence, the brain goes into um, its kind of evolutionarily embedded stress response, which is called fight or flight. The heart pounds, your breath quickens, you're sweating, your senses heighten. But the problem is that when threats come up every day, they overactivate this physiological response. Um, so this fight or flight that's that's constantly being activated creates chronic stress, which then manifests um, in health consequences. And what we know is Black people are facing day-to-day racial discrimination that's triggering this response. And this can then accelerate biological aging. It can cut people's lifespan short. It can manifest in chronic diseases like hypertension, heart disease, all of these things in combination with other environmental factors. So where black people find themselves living is often being exposed to huge amounts of pollution. You know, there's countless factors that are combining to create these really deadly health outcomes. And a lot of that is rooted in racism. It's kind of impossible to ignore that. So then we're all grappling, well, what do we do about this? You know, how are public health authorities handling the public health crisis? Any progress and, and what needs to happen to build this system that will take care of us all? You know, many health authorities like the CDC and others, they acknowledge that racialized health disparities are a huge problem. Um, and they say they're committed to fixing them. But my sources say that they have yet to treat racism like the public health crisis that it is, that this is something that's pressing, that deserves a huge amount of resources and attention right now, that we can't wait anymore and suffer these consequences. So there's still kind of a lag in attention and a lag in adequate resources. And you did kind of touch on, you know, achieving racial equity in healthcare is a pretty monumental and complicated task. But every source I spoke to was confident that this is something we can achieve. But it requires looking at every policy, every protocol, um, and asking, is it fair? Is it equal? Is it just? And if it's not, it's time to change it. Um, And it's high time. It's been time for decades. Absolutely. There is more to the story at inverse.com. You can follow Allie there. In the meantime, Allie, thanks as always. Thanks, Tanya. There is no lack of concern among the medical community with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic and protesting. Up now, why many describe tear gas as unethical and why it poses a heightened risk of transmission for COVID-19. The protesters have picked up some of the tear gas or throwing it back at the police. Expressing outrage. Peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C.'s Lafayette Park were sent scrambling. The sight of protesters clashing with law enforcement. Get back, get back, get back. Your head, your head. He's head. Criticized by police watchdog groups and health officials. All right, there has been no provocation. I can tell you, my uh, colleague Ryan is holding the camera. His eyes, like mine, are stinging. The air is thick with gas, more canisters being fired. 
In June 2020, a group of peaceful protesters was cleared from Lafayette Square with tear gas for President Donald Trump to take an awkward photo holding up a Bible at a nearby church. Similar action took place with this known chemical weapon in cities like Charlotte, Los Angeles, San Antonio, and Philadelphia, among many other places across the U.S. Describing tear gas as counterproductive, unethical, and ultimately dangerous, experts are sounding the alarm, declaring it's time to stop using banned wartime weapons for crowd control. Kelsey Davenport, the director for nonproliferation policy at the Arms Control Association, tells Inverse that tear gas is banned in warfare for a reason. If the U.S. is committed to ban it on the battlefields, we should ban it on our streets. I mean, yes, there is a carve-out in the Chemical Weapons Convention that allows for certain agents like tear gas to be used for riot control purposes. But we've seen time and time again that the United States is not using tear gas to control riots. It's using tear gas to punish protesters and to disperse crowds. So yeah, I think it's past time that the U.S. bans the domestic use of tear gas. While law enforcement agencies consider tear gas a safe riot control agent, scientists, not so much. Most agencies in the United States use chemical weapons packed into tear gas grenades, aerosol canisters, and pellets that are then launched into the air or sprayed at point-blank range. When fired into crowds, Projectiles can hit demonstrators with tremendous force, injuring people's eyes, head, and upper and lower extremities. These riot control agents can also backfire all too often, creating the violence they aim to prevent. With that, experts argue that de-escalation techniques like negotiation and empathy can better avoid this potentially dangerous feedback loop. If you are protesting, knowledge is power, and here with more on everything you need to know about how to stay safe amid the current dangers of tear gas, among other violent forces is Inverse's Ali Patillo. Hey, Ali, welcome back. Hi, Tanya. In your piece, it's sort of referred to as the burning and tingling sensation that can feel up to 100 times stronger than the sting of wasabi. Now, that gets the message across, but physically, can you help us understand what the body goes through when hit with this? Yeah, so tear gas is designed to activate your pain receptors and basically temporarily make people unable to function, causes irritation to the eyes, mouth, throat, lungs, and skin. So it basically plunges the attacked into pain. It causes uncontrollable coughing, intense burning sensations, like the wasabi feeling that you mentioned. Um, It can be extremely difficult to breathe or see clearly. And even after these acute effects subside, which can happen typically around 15 to 30 minutes after you are away from the tear gas exposure and you've kind of cleaned your clothes and cleaned your skin, tear gas can also cause lasting lung and eye damage, as well as psychological trauma that lasts long after you're out of the tear gas attack. Right, right. And not to mention the potential to cause some serious, serious harm. How much damage? have high doses been known to to cause? Yeah, so there's this kind of widespread misconception that tear gas is a benign weapon, but international case reports have shown that extended exposure or high doses of tear gas, especially in confined areas, 
can kill you. And that happens usually because of respiratory failure, chemical burns, or even death by projectile force because tear gas is often packed in tear gas canisters and thrown into crowds. Um, that can you know, hit someone and damage their, their head, their upper, their lower extremities. Um, could even have people kind of lose an eye. Um, and we've seen this in the n- demonstrations in the past few weeks. Uh, You got into some of the longer term effects. What should we really be thinking about furthermore, just in the long run as well? I think what's really important to understand about tear gas is there really isn't a lot of data. Scientists say there isn't even enough data to say whether it's safe or not. And yet it's being used um, widespread for, quote unquote, riot control by law enforcement agencies. Um, Most of the current research is based on mice, on rodents, um, on small groups of previously healthy people. And scientists just say that isn't enough to say whether it's safe or not. But some of the largest studies do say that tear gas exposure can lead to a higher risk of contracting influenza, pneumonia, bronchitis, and respiratory illnesses. But I think that we just really don't know for sure. And the harm, there's a lot of significant harm that is possible. One thing that's really important to note is that tear gas is an indiscriminate weapon. And while no public health expert is arguing for a targeted weapon, the fact that tear gas can endanger anyone in a proximal area where it's deployed is really dangerous. So that could be children, pregnant women, the elderly, innocent bystanders. It it can be carried by the wind. It can seep into surrounding buildings and homes. And that can be extremely, extremely dangerous because we really have no idea how those populations even handle tear gas. And when you consider the prevalence among these protest times, how does COVID-19 elevate the concern in terms of all of these health risks and not to mention transmission? Mm -hmm. So it's too early to say exactly how this is going to play out, but infectious disease experts are extremely worried Um, because as you can imagine, tear gas causes these coughing and sneezing fits, causes you to create those droplets um, that public health experts are so concerned about. And that's the primary mode of transmission of the virus. So as you can imagine, we could see an uptick in cases from these demonstrations just by the fact that people are closer together. You know, tear gas is banned in warfare for a reason. And considering the issues with it that you've just laid out quite clearly, um, there's also abuse, backfiring, misuse. What do you think? Why do you think it's so easily used on the streets and justified as humane? You know, do you think at the very least current events like these can shine a light on this issue and work toward change? Yeah, this is, I think, the, the question that's on everyone's mind right now. These aren't riots that are that, that are suffering from tear gas attacks. These are peaceful protesters, um, and tear gas is kind of being used as a tool to disperse crowds, which is not how they were designed. So I think that all of this and the widespread use and the harm that we're seeing play out every single day is going to lead hopefully to either a ban or more stringent regulation on these substances. Because what we also know is that they're not always effective for whatever their intended goal is. So if they're really there to create calm in a crowd or um, maintain order, they don't do that. They create chaos. Um, They create often the, the violence that they aim 
to prevent um, and de-escalation techniques, negotiation, transparent communication, even empathy on the part of law enforcement and protesters working together to come up with collaborative solutions. That has been shown to be much more effective and less dangerous. Really important information. Allie, thank you so much. Listeners can head to inverse.com to get the full story. In the meantime, Allie, always a pleasure. Thanks, Tanya. Head to inverse.com to read more about how to stay safe and healthy while protesting during COVID-19. You can click on the link in the show notes for that story and everything else we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. You can find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening. <laughs>